Amen. Today is Father's Day, and um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just drop some knowledge on you, okay? So I know this is all going to be really new to you. Um, when you have kids, there are so many things you have to teach them that before you had kids, you never thought you would have to instruct someone on how to do such simplistic things. And before we had Zeke, I had spent time around children, but not an extended period of time. And besides that, they weren't mine, and so I wasn't responsible for them. And there's, there's a certain bliss, you know, in being the uncle or the cool friend or whatever it is that gets to play with the child and then put the child back. Um, that's, that's, that's a good thing. But then we had Zeke, and I, I mean, I think Zeke is a pretty great kid, but I was amazed at how much he didn't know when he was born. And, I mean, the kid couldn't even sit up when he came out. And here's my all-time, this is my favorite example of, of what kids don't know. And it comes from the world of eating. Uh, you know, when you are teaching your child how to use a spoon, uh, you help them get the food on the spoon. And then what do you expect them to do once the food is on the spoon? Bring the spoon to their mouth. That's not what kids initially do, though. You're wrong if you think that's what they initially do at least my kid, he moved his head to the spoon. So we would put food on the spoon and he would do this as if he didn't know he could move the spoon in his hand to his mouth, which I find terribly ironic because babies put everything from their hands into their mouth, but you put something in their hand that they're supposed to use to put food in their mouth, and all of a sudden they can't figure it out? Like, come on. For some reason, they don't understand how that works. So I was always, I, I would marvel at the things that we would have to teach our children. All these things that they didn't know about how the world works, about how their bodies work, about all these different kinds of things. And as your kids get older, as, as a father, I, I have realized that there is one really important lesson that I need to teach them. But this lesson is, is a struggle. Um, the lesson applies to them as individuals, and if they have siblings, which... I, we have two boys. It definitely applies to their interactions with each other. And the lesson that I have to teach them and that I still struggle with how to teach them is I have to teach them what is worth fighting over and what is worth fighting for and what they have to let go of. Now, when you're a kid... Uh, you'll fight over and for almost anything. I mean, you know how it is, right? 
Stop touching me, stop touching me, stop touching me. Why are you looking at me? Uh, Nisha has this, this favorite story from her childhood where uh, Nisha is one of three girls, she's the youngest, and therefore she would uh, sit in the back seat between her two sisters. And her two sisters would fight on either side of her with one another. And so what Nisha would just do is bite whatever arm came into her airspace. <laughs> you can't trust her, I'm telling you. Well, right, if you, if, you put, if you put your arm right in front of her mouth, what else are you supposed to do other than bite your sister? Um, and and my, my boys will sometimes fight with one another over the most inconsequential of things. And when they fight over the inconsequential things, uh, my, my question in my head is like, why is this a thing? Why, why are we fighting over this? Like, why is this taking this kind of time and energy from you when it doesn't really matter at all? And, you know, as parents, we try to diffuse those situations, but really, I don't know if you've thought about it this way, we have to teach our kids what they should fight and stand up for and what they should let go of. And this morning, I, I want us to consider this question. As Christians, what are we supposed to fight for? Now, I first want to say that this is an extremely dangerous question to ask, and I recognize that the answer to this question is far from simple. There are a lot of things that Christians believe are worth fighting for. And if we all want to go home angry today, we can start talking about them. But I, I think that at least without even naming an issue, we can recognize that Christians historically have fought over some things that have shown themselves ultimately to be things we should have let go of. True? We have at times uh, stuck our flags in the ground, refusing to bend on certain ideas or issues. And we have at times denied others the right to be a part of community or the kingdom of God based on what they think about something and whether those ideas match with our idea of whatever that something is. And when we have done these things, we have made the kingdom of God smaller in an effort to protect ideals that we think are so important, even believing that others cannot, cannot have a relationship with God if they think differently than we do. And I, for one, am grateful that some of those days are behind us. That some of the things that we believed in our, our desire to follow and honor God, that we believe were so important that we now have some different perspectives on some of those things. 
And I'm grateful for that because the kingdom of God has gotten bigger because of that. I don't hesitate to say that right now, the public face of Christianity, as I see it portrayed, and specifically what Christians should fight for or about or who they should fight with, is something that concerns me. I really do worry about this. And I worry about my own kids who are growing up in a world that I increasingly see is a, is a world that is filled with people that will fight over anything. Anything. Everything. So how... Sorry, I'm venting a little bit to you this morning. How do I help them understand what is worth fighting for and what they should let go of? And if, and, and if, if I have to identify this thing for them, this, this is where you plant your flag, you know, this is the hill. Well, what is that hill? In the story that we are being, that we're walking through in the book of Acts, it gives us some perspective on all of this. It tells us where the battleground is. It tells us the hill that we need to stand on. So we don't have to guess, church. We don't have to guess. The word of God tells us what is most important. And in the first three chapters of the book of Acts, this newly formed group of Christians, they were experiencing this spirit-filled exponential growth. Um, you couldn't ask for a better start to a movement than this group of Christians had. And if you remember from where we were in chapter 3, John and Peter had just healed a man who was born lame. And, and again, I love how the Bible describes it, that his muscles his muscles, his legs became strong on the spot. And, and so they had healed this man who was born lame. And again, Peter's not going to let this opportunity go to waste. So he preaches the gospel. And his presentation of the gospel was in many ways very confrontational. He directly called people out for killing Jesus. And he could do that because, guess what? He was around people that helped kill Jesus. But people were responding to this message. They were responding to what they were seeing and hearing. And it was a real movement that was powered by God. And then we get to chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to Acts chapter 4. This is where we're going to be today. And here is the situation coming out of this sort of miraculous time. From Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. 
They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Okay, this is a pretty incredible summary <laughs> of what was going on. So they, the apostles, Peter and John, they continued to preach the gospel, and as they continued to preach the gospel, their numbers kept growing even when they were arrested and thrown into jail. Now, again, they were gathering in the temple to worship God and to preach the gospel because we have to remember that these new Christians were Jews, all of them. And so they didn't see any sort of disconnect between what God did before Jesus and what God did through Jesus. And so for them, going to the temple to worship was the most natural thing to do. Now, we know from Acts chapter 3 that, that Peter and John were going to the temple for all of the regular prayer times. And while they were there, they would preach the gospel. Now, the Sadducees, they were um, the wealthy and powerful group amongst the Jewish people. Uh, they were responsible for all of temple worship practices, and they were fundamentally, the Sadducees, were the ones who acted to silence Jesus through the crucifixion. When he went to trial, he went before the Sadducees. They did not, in the story of Jesus, we know, they did not act rashly, but rather waited for the right time to make, bring their plan into fruition. When you read the Gospels, you see often um, they wanted to kill him, but they waited. <laughs> or, you know, you see these kinds of statements that, that they were waiting for the right time to take Jesus out. And so now you have these people who are powerful and influential. And they are in charge of the temple. And here are Peter and John preaching the Gospel in the temple in, in the very house of the people who sent Jesus to the cross. And they had temple guards, and they couldn't help but noticing that these people here in the temple are worshiping God, but they're talking about Jesus all the time. And it concerned them. The Sadducees also did not believe in the resurrection. And so the fact, not only were they talking about Jesus, but they were talking about the resurrection of the dead, was like just a direct challenge to everything that that space was supposed to be about. It was a big problem. So they decided to take action, and they arrested Peter and John, who then had to spend the night in jail. But what is so astounding to me about this is it didn't stop anything. You see that? So let's pick it up in verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power... Or what name did you do this? Referring to the healing of the lame man. 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, I don't know what strikes you about this passage. I also don't know if you've ever been arrested. But Peter and John were arrested, spent the night in jail, and then brought before people who had the ability to destroy them. And they knew this because they had already had Jesus crucified. But I, I, I read this, and there's one thing that in my head should be there that isn't. And it's fear. They are not afraid of the situation that they find themselves in. And in fact... they are somehow bold. Now, they were brought before these big guns, and the big guns ask them what, on the surface, seems like a really strange question. It's kind of weird, right? The question is, by whose power or in what name did you heal these people? Now, maybe we shouldn't be surprised by this because this actually follows the same playbook that they use with Jesus. Uh, in Luke chapter 11, though it's not attributed to the religious leaders, Jesus drives out demons and people accuse him of driving out demons by the power of Satan. Saying, well, if you can drive out demons, then you must be in line with Satan, which Jesus is like, you couldn't be any more dumb than you are right now, but I'm going to talk you through this. So basically, in this confrontation with Peter and John, they are using the same line of reasoning. It's not just to say, you're bad and you should stop. It's a question of, power. And they ask this question because what do they want to accomplish? They want to cast so some amount of doubt as to who is behind all of this. And if they can make it seem like it's not God, it's something else, then they can go to the people 
and say, this isn't really from God. This is happening for another reason. But just like with Jesus, when this question of by whose power are you able to do this, it plays right into the hands of Peter and John, who again are not afraid or intimidated at all. But I want you to remember that they should be. No, really. They should be. And we find that their response to this question was just as bold and confrontational as their presentation of the gospel has always been. Number one, their answer to the question is fueled by the Holy Spirit. And so in this moment, this question is asked, here they are before these people ready to judge them, and the Holy Spirit comes and fills them up. And if you remember, when the Holy Spirit fills them up, what is the purpose of that filling? It's always the same. To proclaim the gospel. The filling of the Holy Spirit always leads to a telling of who Jesus is. And so they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And and, and look at what they say. Number one, it's kind of dumb to ask us how we healed this man because at the very least, we did him a solid. Like, so are you mad at us because we did something good for someone? Because, fine. (laughs) But I'll tell you by whose power this came to be. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, I want to back up a second, because I, I started this out by saying, what is the hill? Where do we plant our flag? And this story and what we're still going to see in it tells us where we plant our flag. It tells us the hill that we die on. And the fight that the apostles were fighting that day wasn't really about how they had power. You see that, right? It's just, like a, it's just like a trick question. And Peter and John saw through it because they understood the fight is about Jesus. It's not about them. It's not about where their power came from. They don't say a word in their defense. Instead, they speak up for Jesus. And the issue, the ultimate issue that they know they are fighting for is that Jesus is the one who is changing the world and that salvation is found through no one else. This is the story they have to tell. 
which tells me something important as a Christian father. And that is, I may think a lot of things are important. And I may think that a lot of things are worth fighting for. I may even think that some things are worth fighting for in the name of Jesus. But if I make whatever argument I have to make, and it does not directly relate to Jesus and who he is, then I have missed. I've missed. The fight always begins and ends with Jesus. The battleground that we fight, whatever issue you may want to tie onto it, the battleground is who is Jesus to you? Always. Let's pick it up in verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Really smart, these guys are. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So here's the other part of this. They, they stuck to what was important. They, they knew what the hill was. They they went to bat for Jesus, like directly for Jesus. Not letting it become about other things, but made it about who Jesus is and that Jesus is the way to be saved. He is the only way to salvation. And they did this through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they turned everything around on the Sanhedrin, these, these smart, knowledgeable authoritative people to where they didn't know what to do. Now, we're going to get an explanation later about what some of their thinking is. But I am struck by the fact that this whole scenario should be completely stacked against Peter and John. And they come out strong. It's clear that they were acting through the power of the Holy Spirit. And there was nothing that this group of people who thought they understood God so well, there's nothing that they could do to change the story that was being told. Which is that 
Jesus gave us the power to do these things. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is giving us the power to speak. And he is what it's all about. It's not about you or me or this other things. It's, it's about who Jesus is. Last part of the story. Verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, <laughs> when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I am amazed by this part of the story. Because They, they did something so miraculous in healing this man who was lame. They were brought and spent the night in jail and then brought before people that were better and smarter than them. And they spoke the truth of Jesus boldly and told them who Jesus was. They were so effective that, that, that the people didn't even really know what to do with them. And, and they, they left and went back. And what did they do? What did they do? Number one, they worshiped and prayed to God. But it's what they prayed, you know, that really gets to me. Because hadn't they been bold? Weren't they filled with the Spirit? Didn't they see God do amazing things? But what did they pray for? They prayed for boldness to speak and for the power of God to be shown. Why? Why did they pray that prayer? Coming out of such an amazing display of God's power in their lives. Is it because they believed that God wouldn't do that again? Who did they not trust themselves? We have to remember, church, that Peter is the one who jumped out of the boat to walk on water and then saw the waves. We have to remember that Peter is the one who said, I will never leave you, and then denied knowing Jesus at all. If there is someone in this story who understands what the limits are, it's Peter. 
And what is the one thing that they don't want? They don't want to start looking at the waves and forget the power of God. They don't want to get caught up in their own story about how hard life is now that these people are against them. Instead, they want to boldly speak who Jesus is in every situation and every scenario. They wanted God to be in control. And so when they have this moment coming out of this intense situation, what they recognize is that, number one, people are stupid and try to take control away from God all the time, and it always makes things worse. And that they don't want to be those kinds of people. So God... Give us the strength and the boldness. Show yourself so that the name of Jesus may go out. And church, when they prayed that with this honest, with these honest hearts, the place shook. The place shook. So, I guess, as I think about being a dad and what I want to teach my kids and all those things, and when I think about what I want them to stand for, I am humbled by these passages. Because I realize that, you know, we try to stand for a lot of different things. And some of those things are really important. Some of them might not be as important as I think they are. And this reminds me that there is really one thing worth standing for. And that is Jesus. That there is no other name in heaven and earth by which anyone can find salvation. And if I am going to speak and plant my flag on any hill. That hill had better be Jesus. And if I put my flag somewhere else and Jesus is not involved, if it doesn't lead people to understanding and knowing who Jesus is and how much God loves them, then that's my mistake. That's my mistake. The gospel is always going to face opposition. There will always be people who do not love or accept Jesus. And the battleground is always Jesus. Who is he? But I know that if my boys can stand for Jesus and Jesus being the salvation of God, a gift to this world, then whatever else they choose to stand for will be okay. If they can just stand there first. Amen? Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Jesus. We are grateful for the love and salvation that you showed us through him. God, we are tempted to make a lot of things really important. But help us to realize, to understand, Father, that Jesus is the only battleground. He is the only place, the only hill for us to plant our flag, for us to stand firm. And Father, help us to see that when we stand firm in Jesus, when we make ourselves about him and the salvation that you have brought to the world that you will shake the room. Thank you for loving us, God, and thank you for the gift of Jesus that you have given us. In his name we pray, amen.